Hi everyone, welcome to the Next Bite podcast, hosted by the Monash Nutrition and Dietetic Society. Over the next five episodes, we will be interviewing Monash Nutrition graduates and staff, sharing their incredibly diverse study and career journeys. Listen in for conversations with our guests about how they got to where they are and the lessons they have learned along the way. For our first episode, we thought we'd quickly introduce ourselves before we get into today's show. I'm Charlotte, the president of the Monash Nutrition and Dietetic Society and one of the co-hosts of The Next Bite. I'm currently in my second year studying a Bachelor of Nutrition Science. And the reason why I was really passionate about The Next Bite podcast project is because I think the best way that we can learn and plan for our careers as nutrition students is through learning from that of others. And personally, I think this learning through the form of a podcast is a great source of inspiration and knowledge for us. Hi, I'm Tiana and I'm the Vice President of the Monash Nutrition and Dietetic Society. I'm also in my current, I'm also in my second year um, of the Bachelor of Nutrition Science degree. And one thing I'm really looking forward to um, in the next bite is being challenged on my ideas of what an ideal career in nutrition really is. Now sit back, relax, and get ready to take the next bite with us. Well, good morning. Um, Janine is currently a senior lecturer in the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics and Food here at Monash University and has over 25 years experience as a clinical dietitian. Her work has taken her across the world, working in places such as King's College in London and the Gastroenterology Department at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. She has a strong interest in professionalism in the field of dietetics, which forms the subject of her PhD that she is, she is currently completing. We were lucky enough to have Janine as our unit coordinator for personal and professional perspectives in year one of our nutrition course. And we are very happy to be welcoming her as the first guest in our podcast, The Next Bite. Please welcome Janine. Good morning. <laughs> Lovely to be here. Thank you for the invitation. It's our pleasure. So to start off, we're going to do a few icebreaker questions. Um, so we're wondering, what is um, your favourite cuisine or dish you like to cook? Oh, favourite cuisine um, or dish I like to cook. So um, I'll tell you something that I've cooked this week, which is a poached quince and a browned butter tart. So it's a Stephanie Alexander recipe. And I really love quinces and they're in season at the moment. And so I've been really enjoying having time at home uh, and I've made quince paste and poached quinces. So that's beautiful. And that's one of my son's favourite things. Um, and for cuisines, I think I really love Spanish food. Uh, I spend a lot of time in Spain for Spanish food, Vietnamese and Middle Eastern are probably my top three. Wow. So you would say... Those three are your, like, favourite foods? Like, well, do you have a favourite food amongst those cuisines? <laughs> oh, my gosh, I don't. So I think, you know, favourite food, wow. Uh, mangoes, uh, mushrooms, mm. uh, manchego cheese. Uh, I really love seafood. I love oysters mm. and scallops and beautiful fresh snapper. Uh, fruit, like peaches and figs. It's very hard for me. I think it would be impossible <laughs> for me to pick a favourite. Um, and I think I really try to eat seasonally, um, you know, depending on the weather and, um, yeah, so it really varies, I think, yeah. Nice. Um, what is your number one hobby? My number one hobby, that uh, would have to be hiking. Uh, I really mm. love being outside. I really love being in the bush. And I think for me hiking uh, combines lots of my favourite things. So I really love sort of being surrounded by trees, um, if I can do it sort of where I can get some sea air. Um, but I really sort of find it really rejuvenating to be in the bush. And often if I get stuck with a work problem or certainly for my PhD, going for a walk is a really great way for me to sort of think creatively and also for relaxation, I think, uh, and sort of stress management at this time. Yeah, mm. so hiking is probably my favourite hobby. I would have thought that was very boring in my 20s, but um, 
No, I feel like oh, it's I think that, yeah. <laughs> it probably would have been dancing Especially, maybe yeah. in my 20s or eating out. But, um, yeah. <laughs> Especially now I feel like hiking is it's such a good, I mean, it's one of the only activities we can kind of do outside the house. But, yeah, I think it just puts things into perspective sometimes as well because it's just, yeah. Absolutely. And I think, you know, whether sometimes I do it to music and sometimes I just do it sort of in silence, sometimes I go by myself or with others. And I just think it's, yeah, I really enjoy it. And I guess you can notice, you know, different things, whether it's sort of a, you know, herbs growing in someone's garden or the sky or, but it's a really, yeah, really great for me to, to change my thinking about something. Yeah. So when you're not hiking, what's your favourite thing to do on a rainy day? <laughs> oh, um, on a rainy day, well, I'm really fortunate that uh, where I live you can hear the rain on the roof and so that's mm-hmm. a pretty uh, special thing. And so I actually lay outside um, last week when it was raining in a hammock and so oh. I read a book while it was raining Um also really like cooking and listening to sort of music when it's raining. So I kind of love baking. Um, and then I've got a – my son's 11 and he's just begun to play Scrabble. So, again, a rainy day, I think, last week or the week before, we played Scrabble together. So I quite like a rainy day. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, what's your favourite travel destination, either one you've been to or one you plan on going to? Uh, I'm a keen traveller. Uh, I didn't sort of start travelling really until my mid-20s, but I'm um, really keen traveller. I tend, I've done quite a lot of overseas travel because I lived away. Um, and so I think I mentioned I've been to Spain sort of nine or ten times, so that holds a special place in my heart. And I can speak some Spanish, so I think that sort of adds another dimension to travelling when you can communicate, you know, in another mm-hmm. language. Uh, but last year I did the three capes walk in Tasmania um, and I also got to the southwest of Western Australia and they're really uh, beautiful places that I'd love to go back to. So I think probably travelling more locally uh, is at the top of my list at the moment. Um, and yeah. So I'd love to kind of get a camper van and head off for a few months, but uh, that won't be for a while, I don't think. Mm. And I um, still have dreams to... Uh, backpack around South America I'd set off to do that in my early 30s and haven't quite got there but but that's still there on my bucket list love that to move on to kind of our first segment we want to kind of go back to how you began your career in nutrition uh yeah because you've we've We've talked about your wealth of experience, but yeah, going back to kind of when you were in our position, we're really interested to find out a bit about that. Yeah, I think um, my interest in nutrition really began as a teenager. Uh, I grew up in the country in New South Wales and I was surrounded, I guess, by beautiful produce. Uh, My dad was a farmer and um, so always, you know, remember, yeah, being surrounded by different produce. And I I was an only child um, and I spent a lot of time on my own and actually taught myself to cook. So at the same time, I was sort of quite sporty and I was really interested in people uh, and, of course, you know, learnt about a career as a dietitian. So I was really fortunate. I made my mind up at 15 that I wanted to be a dietitian um, and I guess as things worked out, I actually got there. Um, I was quite shy as a teenager and certainly had no idea that um, I hadn't really thought that much about my career, but knew that I wanted to sort of combine those three things of food, uh, sort of health and people. And I think, you know, that's a really common thing um, that brings people into the study of nutrition. Um, yeah, they really wanted to, to merge sort of that health and, and people and, and food. Mm. So you mentioned that you grew up in the country. For the rest of your had a similar um, upbringing, what yeah. kind of advice would you give them, to, like moving from a small town to university in like a big city? Yeah, I think um, I kind of can still remember, Tiana, what a big change it was for me and what a transition. And, in fact, I chose the university that I did my science degree at, which was my undergrad. I chose it because it was close to my hometown. So I remember I got accepted into Sydney Uni, but the city was too big and scary for me. 
Um, so I went to the local uh, uni that was two hours away. Um, so I guess I acknowledge that's a really big change um, for people. But I think, you know, being able to push yourself out of your comfort zone is a really important thing when you go to uni. Um, there are so many opportunities and I think so much more now even than when I went um, that you can experience. So really encourage students to do that. And I think, you know, some amazing people, people doing all sorts of things, you know, different societies, different clubs. Um, and Melbourne, you know, for students at Monash, Melbourne's an incredible city. And I think, yeah, so really making the most of some of those opportunities. Uh, and I think, you know, seize the time, you know, to really expand your horizons. And I think the other thing is just investing in getting to know people. Um, yes. You know, if you're shy or introverted, you know, developing a few close friendships, um, but really sort of getting to know the different people that you get to work with or study with. Um, and I think one of the greatest gifts in my life is I'm still friends with some of the people that I met uh, in my O week uh, mm. and we still catch up every two years. And so that's 30 years ago now. Um, so, yeah, I think just really... Acknowledge that it's a big transition, take your time, but also push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Mm. Would you argue that, or not argue, but would you kind of suggest that, that that side of your degree is just as important as the as the academic side? Like how, if, you, if there was almost a pie and you had to yeah. kind of weight it, how, how, would you, how would you kind of weight yeah, it? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really good question, Charlotte, and I think... I do think it's probably as important because sort of early 20s, and I guess what I have to say is that, you know, the undergraduate student could be anywhere from sort of 17 to 65 probably. Mm-hmm. So keeping in mind that the students that are coming to uni these days are a really diverse cohort. But if we think about, say, the most of our students that are coming from high school, I think there's a whole lot of pressure immediately about doing well academically because it is a really competitive kind of work environment. Um, You know, the job market's much more sort of fluid than it used to be. But I think investing in that social side of things and making those connections are incredibly invaluable for the rest of your life. Um, Mm. And you don't know sort of the serendipity of some of them you don't know where they might lead you uh, in the future. So I think I really, and I think it also helps people with, you know, stress management or to have other interests as well. Mm. So it's a really exciting time to learn about yourself and expose yourself to new opportunities. So I think, yeah, really balancing out that sort of academic and social side of things is really important. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you tell us about any formative experiences you had early on in your career that kind of shaped you to who you are today? Oh, gosh, I can, um, yeah, really quickly go back to being a new grad dietitian Um, really quickly. So my first job, I was a locum at a hospital in Queensland. So locum, I was just filling in and... um, I was the only dietitian at this big hospital and I kind of did, yeah, I remember sort of one of the first patients that I saw and I felt really out of my depth and felt sort of quite underprepared and I remember running back to the office, probably quite literally actually, and sort of locking myself in my office and picking up a textbook and just thinking I don't know enough to see this person. But I kind of, you know, took some deep breaths, read the chapter in the textbook, I think I phoned a friend and went back and, um, you know, had input into this person's care and it actually went well. And I think I think that really sort of helped me acknowledge that you can't know everything mm-hmm. um, and that's okay, but being resourceful enough to be able to access things. Um, and I think for anyone who's listening, you know, that was a time before the internet, you know, we didn't have mobile phones, there was no internet even. So it was a really interesting time. Um, And I think also some of the formative experiences early on was having some really great outcomes with clients. Um, Mm -hmm. 
and that just being so incredibly rewarding. Um, so I think that really kind of kept me connected to being a dietitian and I really enjoyed the challenge of learning about people and learning about conditions um, and really wanting to have a positive impact. Yeah. And did you find that almost when you did leave your degree, like the knowledge that you gained, did it take on quite a – was it quite different from, say, I know we're probably more in the terms of the nutrition science degree, it's more of the theoretical component and it's yeah. not dietetics. But yeah. say – um, I just remember talking to you a bit about this last year. Say for that, our first years who are doing a you know a big science foundations unit you know, and learning all about metabolism. Like, does yeah. that become a bit more kind of embedded in kind of context as you move further yeah. through your degree and into the workforce? Absolutely, and I think um, you know an example of that probably happened sort of further later on in my career when I was working in liver disease when I was in Oxford, and you know, needing to go back again, back to the textbooks and really learning about the physiology of the liver and all the kind of biochemistry um, and just being really kind of inspired by that again because knowing I had the foundation um, for that sort of in my, you know, in my brain somewhere but really sort of honing it in um, and it became a really excellent um foundation I suppose knowing that I had that sort of scientific knowledge and then being able to apply that into really practical information for, for patients so mm-hmm. um, I think yeah working and coming across different conditions um, really helps connect some of that science foundation which I think can sometimes be hard for students mm-hmm. um, and I guess it's as a student sort of having faith that the people that have put the course together have kind of put stuff in there that will be relevant um, and will be of some use. But I mm-hmm. think that's also, you know, the job of academics. We need to help make those links for students in terms of what's relevant. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So on that, when you were coming out of uni, did you yeah. feel like you were ready for your career? Oh, no. No. <laughs> Straight no. No, I was really nervous. I remember, um, no, I, my first job interview was over the phone, actually. And I remember when they said, you know, you've got the job, I was like, oh, my gosh, no way. Um, you know, ha- so the fact that I'd sort of done this interview trying to get the job and then when I was off the job, I sort of was like, I don't think I'm ready. Um But, of course, you know, we can never be fully ready. And I think that, again, that's an example of when you get pushed out of your comfort zone. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was, but we can't know everything. But it's about being resourceful. Um, And that's a great skill, I think, that many students and graduates have, that you become very resourceful uh, in your learning. And, of course, now with the internet, you know, it's a very different era to begin working as well. Yeah, absolutely. um, just with your career, was that like straight out? Was that, did most people at that time end up getting a career straight uh, out? No, not at all. And I, I wait, I think I didn't have a job for a couple of months. Okay. Uh, I remember my <laughs> best friend got a job really quickly. Um, and it was actually her leaving the locum, which is she rang me and said, you know, I'm going to be leaving. I've been offered a full-time job you know, you might want to contact them. So I had to wait a couple of months. Um, and I think, you know, I was trying to make the most of that. I was really tired at the end of uni. Um, you know, I've been studying for nearly five years and I think it was okay to actually take the foot off uh, the pedal for a little while. Um, so I think I had done some volunteering. I'd gone in and uh, to an organisation in Brisbane and done some volunteering, so sort of kept, kept a bit connected. Um, but yeah, tried not to to lose to lose faith, and I think I was really flexible that I was prepared to go anywhere to get a job. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's part of it. You know, if you're very um, set in your thinking and you don't want to move and you want to stay where you are, then that might be much harder. But I think taking sort of some of those leaps of faith um, really opened up opportunities for me then. And do you think maybe potentially for graduates? these days it's more would it be more common to say have a a part-time job that is 
say nutrition related or work as a locum and they have quite a diverse portfolio even just within the week of the sorts of things that you do rather than having say a full-time job absolutely Charlotte and I think um I remember I'm just trying to think I've been working I think for seven years and I actually had four dietetic jobs in one week Mm. um so I purpose yeah, I don't know, I can't quite remember how it came to be, but I remember I was working in a community health centre uh, one day a week. I was travelling an hour. Uh, I was doing private practice, I think, one night a week and on Saturday mornings. I was working at a uni. I remember that used to be on Fridays a day a week. And then I was working in a hospital two days a week because that was all they had. Um, and so I kind of pulled all these bits together to make a job up for myself. Mm. And then different opportunities then came out of uh, a couple of those things for more permanent work. But I knew that I wanted to live where I wanted to live and so I moved there and then sort of found whatever I could get. Yeah. 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 So I think it's about sort of having some flexibility that you might need to move. You know, the job market is pretty tight. But, again, um, if you want to stay where you are, it might be creating your own opportunities where there aren't any or if you're prepared to move. Um, I remember one of our graduates moved from Melbourne to a really uh, a town in the very west of New South Wales and she got a job sort of above her skill level almost. But that's been an incredible platform for her and her career has flourished because she left her boyfriend behind in Melbourne and was really brave and kind of uh, went to... Yeah, a long way away, and she's had some really rich rewards from that. Yeah, that that's great, and it's really. I think it's really good to know that in the degree as well, because I think we do hear as nutrition students, there's you know, you might get the odd comment from someone saying, "Oh, you know, what what are you going to do at the end of your degree?" Or there's there's no jobs, but really, I think it is what you said. It's about being creative and not you know being prepared that there's not just a full-time job necessarily waiting yeah. again, but it's yeah you've got to be a bit creative yeah but also the kind of skills that that you have uh, when you leave the de- your degrees you're much better equipped than say what I would have been uh, 25 or 30 years ago you know you can go and work as a research assistant in an organisation um, or another uni that might not be anything to do with nutrition. Um, mm. Or you can use your kind of food tech and your food skills in a private, you know, food industry. Um, mm. So there's a whole range of uh, some of you with different, you know, kind of communication, you know, you can write blogs or, you know, you've got really advanced communication skills. So I think there's a whole range of options and I think, you know, the workforce is really changing. Most people now are going to have 15 or more jobs in their in their lifetime. Mm. And I think that leads quite, it's a great segue into our next section where we wanted to talk a bit about sort of looking back on your career to date and just, you know, asking how, like, how have you built up such a diverse profile in terms of nutrition experience? Um, well, to be honest, I didn't give it a lot of thought, so I'll be, you you know, I think students these days are probably, not probably, are much more advanced in their thinking and planning, certainly than I was. Um, so I didn't give it a whole lot of thought and certainly where I've ended up was never my intention. Um, so I think, you know, I'll be very candid and honest about that. And I think when I was 22, I thought that by 27 I would be married and that I would have three or four children by the time I was 31 or 32. And, of course, none of that's happened. Um, and I hadn't, didn't really think that too much, too much about my work. So it's interestingly, uh, therefore, that I think I've become very career-focused. Um, so I think when I finished my dietetics, my goal was to be a sports dietitian uh, or a renal dietitian, and I haven't done either of those things really. Um, and so I didn't really have a clear idea about what my first job was. Uh, and I, as I just sort of said before, I just went to the first place that I got work, and it was only for six weeks. And it was a locum, 
And then when I was in that job, I think towards the end of that six weeks, I actually had a phone interview for a permanent job. Uh, it was in the country uh, in New South Wales. I'd never been there. Um, I remember the day my dad dropped me off uh, and we were both in tears when we said goodbye. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was a really quite a big step for me. But it was an amazing experience and it was a permanent job um, and I ended up staying there for three and a half years. So that was a really kind of amazing foundation, I suppose. Um, and I did so many different things in that job. So while it was a bit scary being on my own, I had a really good network of dietitians around um, and I did so many different things. So it's really great for my confidence and really consolidating my skills. Um and then I, one of my best friends actually said, you need to go overseas. And I said, oh, but I'm really happy here. I'm playing different sport most nights. I had a great bunch of friends. And I think she could see, she was a bit older than me, that if I didn't leave, I probably never would. Mm-hmm. So she probably pushed me actually a bit. Uh, and I went overseas um, and I ended up in London. And I'd never lived in a, a city. You know, I hadn't lived in Sydney Um And so I guess that was, and I really felt very out of my depth there. Um, And it wasn't really, and I just took up again, whatever kind of job was around um, and got really broad experience and then began to sort of travel a bit. And I guess my horizons kind of broadened. Um, So it wasn't really until I'd been working for about seven or eight years that I began to think a bit more about about my career. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was quite... In terms of building up that profile, I guess I, I knew things I wasn't interested in doing, but I was kind of open otherwise to, to opportunities that present presented themselves. Mm. Um, and I remember I remember being in London and I was working at a hospital uh, in the east of London and it was the end of kind of a long winter and I remember seeing an ad uh, in the dietetic journal and said, you know, do you want to spend summer on an island working in a hospital? And I was like, gosh, summer on an island, that kind of sounds exotic. Mm-hmm. And I ended up getting the job and it was in Guernsey. It was in the Channel Islands. And it was, I had four months there uh, from April to August and it was the hardest job. So for the first three or four weeks, it's the most stressed I think I've ever been. And then it ended up being this incredible incredible experience in my career um and for a couple of weeks I was the only dietitian on the island uh and there were 80,000 people that live in Guernsey um and so did everything from kind of pediatric intensive care uh to the renal unit to going around the island to the different GP clinics um so it was a really really interesting time in my life yeah wow so in yes. terms of in terms of where so you've you so your first overseas move was to the UK is that yep. is that right and yep, then right. and then where 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 else has your career taken you geographically from there Yeah so I had a couple of years in the UK and that just locuming uh, so I sort of worked around the UK and London and went to Guernsey and then I actually came back uh, suddenly because my dad was unwell Um, Mm -hmm. so I came back to Australia quite quickly and ended up in Newcastle in New South Wales and so that was and I had a couple of years there and so I lived uh, right near the beach uh, and worked at a range of different places in Newcastle and I learnt to surf so that was the first time I'd ever really lived um, so close to the sea and that was a really fun time in my life and then I guess what started to happen was I was in the late 20s and friends started to get married and settle down and I knew that I really had itchy feet still Um, Mm -hmm. and so I felt like I had unfinished business overseas Um, I'd had a couple of really good job offers and I decided that I would pack my backpack and head back um and I that was when I ended up I went to Oxford um again it was for a 12-month job I didn't really know anything about Oxford apart from that it was close to Heathrow so I could go traveling on weekends um but it ended up being probably the most significant chapter in my career 
and really consolidated. Uh, I became a gastro specialist. Uh, I did manage, I managed a big department of 25 dietitians. Um, and again, that was never my purpose to set out to be a manager, but the opportunity presented itself and I thought, why not? Um, and then that also was the platform when I got into academia because um, I was a student training lead in the hospital but sort of began to realise I thought the students didn't know enough about food or I thought that their communication skills, I thought I wonder what's happening at uni and so I really wanted to go to the coalface and kind of see for myself. So that was actually how uh, my uni career began really. Um, yeah, so sort of I guess it's been a, a combination of sort of pursuing things that I've been interested in, in at work but also pursuing things that I've been interested in personally uh, in terms of travelling and a bit of adventure. Um, yeah. And I think I probably have a belief that nothing's ever wasted, um, so no mm -hmm. opportunity. Yeah. Sorry, I've um, gone off. I got a bit excited there. I went off and got up in my soapbox. No. My apologies. <laughs> no, no, it's so interesting. It's really interesting to hear how you got into lecturing now because that obviously is quite a big part of your life in present day so yeah. what do you what what do you enjoy about being a lecturer and how do you think it has perhaps enhanced your career overall it's it's such a fantastic job and I think I really love it because you can be quite creative uh it's never the same it's really interesting and you're working with, um, you know, colleagues that are really at sort of the cutting edge uh, of new ideas and new innovations. But I also think it's such a privilege to be uh, having input and being involved in someone's education, you know. To me, I take that role really seriously because um, I want to do it well. And for me, it's really energising to be around young people or being around people who want to learn and so I get a lot back as well. Um, mm. And so I think I try to be inspiring and motivating, but at the same time I find working with students equally inspiring and motivating for me. Um, and I think I really care about dietitians or nutritionists being really effective at what they do. And so for me, I guess as you would both know, you know, my interest areas are really developing personal and interpersonal skills mm. uh, and food expertise. So I really think, you know, these are essential tools um, for nutrition professionals to be leaders uh, in their careers. So, you know, this is where I invest a lot of my teaching energy, I suppose. And it's wonderful then when I get to see the rewards of some of the graduates that do incredible things. Um, and I think also just I've probably I've come to love research um, so I'm quite a curious soul naturally. So it's been it's been really wonderful to be able to be become a better researcher. Um, and really, uh, I still very much identify with being a dietitian. Um, and I have had my private practice happening up until just recently. And I think that's really good for my practice as well because it keeps me very anchored in what I'm trying to achieve as a lecturer. Mm is that there's actually clients or there's, um, you know, nutrition and health outcomes um, that we're trying to make a difference around. And that also just in terms of your your interest in research as well as being a so you've been practicing you're a practicing dietitian and a lecturer you're also completing a phd <laughs> so can you tell us a bit about your PhD as well <laughs> yeah i think it's um you know and i guess it's unusual probably you know for an academic most people have a phd and then become an academic but I came to the uni very much as a practitioner. Um, and so I guess it's sort of the reverse way, I guess, that many academics, um, you know, it happens for many academics. But my PhD, I'm about two-thirds of, two of the way there now, um, so only one-third to go. And I, yeah, it's really wonderful for me to be a student again. Um, and, again, it's a real privilege to be able to study uh, and do my PhD, particularly at a uni like Monash. Um, 
you know, in many Australian unis, you know, we have such excellent facilities and resources uh, and opportunities. So I'm absolutely loving it. Um, I've collected uh, all of my data now. Uh, I interviewed 100 people. Uh, so I've got a lot of words to try and make sense of. Um, and I'll be starting to write my thesis later on this year. So, um, wow. yeah, do you want to know what I'm doing? Doing it yes, on or? we'd love to know yeah. what you're doing on. And if you could also explain what what a thesis is as well. So that would be yeah, great for our listeners, as well as obviously your what's this big thesis about? <laughs> so the thesis is is like a big book in essence. Uh, it's about 80,000 words, um, somewhere around that. So some people, it might somewhere, yeah, somewhere between 50 and 100,000 words. But really, it's a summary of all the research that you've done. And a PhD is actually, it's called a doctorate of philosophy. So in essence, you've got to come up with something that's never been investigated or never been found out before. So it's really um, something novel and and you found out something new. So that seems really exciting. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I'm doing, I'm looking at professionalism in dietetics Um, which, of course, some people might yawn and go, oh, my gosh, how boring. Um, But for me, it's really interesting because it means lots of different things. And so that's part of what I'm doing is I've asked people about what they think it is. Uh, And I've asked students and I've asked practitioners and I've asked academics. So I've got lots of different ideas about what it is. And then I'm really interested in how we teach it, how do you learn it? You know, how do you learn to be professional? And then I've actually asked everyone what they think are some of the dilemmas, what are sort of some of the hard things around professionalism that they've experienced either as a student um, or in their workplace uh, or as an academic. So I think I think what really brought me to it is that I care about sort of the quality of dietitians and the standard of our work and I guess... Having been around a long time, I probably saw that there were some opportunities uh, to improve things. And I think I really care about people being able to have hard conversations. Um, you know, when practice isn't quite how it should be or there's a breakdown in communication that we're actually able to have those conversations. Mm. Do you does, think- that, does that make sense? Is that is that clear? Yeah, or? yeah. yeah. absolutely. Do you think that um, doing your PhD now has kind of enriched what you're writing about? Like, do you think had you done it earlier in um, your career, you feel like maybe you would have been missing a few things? Or do you think maybe earlier on would have kind of helped you now in your career? It's a really, it's a really good question, Tiana, and I think I think you could answer it both ways, and it be and it be um, be accurate. So I did think about doing a PhD um, in inflammatory bowel disease, actually, uh, when I was working in King, at King's College and, and Oxford. And it would have been a really different PhD to what I'm doing now. And it probably would have kept me working in that area of gastro um, rather than becoming a lecturer. Mm. So I guess it wasn't the right time for me, though, personally, Um, When I was thinking about it, I just got engaged and I was thinking about moving back to Australia and so I couldn't commit um, to another three or four years in England Um, and so it just wasn't quite the right time personally. Um, Whereas now, kind of 15 years later, it's a really wonderful time in my life, although I'm a bit older and it's a really different type of PhD, it's a really good time in my life to be doing it. Um, so I don't think I've missed out on opportunities by doing it later, but I also think it can open up opportunities for someone if they do it earlier. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah so it's got to be the right time for, for, for the person that's considering it rather than them feeling pressure just to do it because. Uh, and it's a big commitment, you know. Yeah. And to summarise on with in, on your kind of looking back on your career and you've you know, we've talked about your wealth of experience, it'd be interesting to know like how how did you know when you were kind of ready to move on to 
of a new kind of skill set in terms of your dietetic career? Like, um, yeah, how did, yeah. I think, honestly, I probably didn't always know. Um, so I think, you know, for example, when I was in Forbes, it was my best friend who said, come on, JD, it's time to move. You need to go overseas. And so I was loving my job and my, you know, my life, but she probably kind of pushed me a bit. Um, so I think listening to people that you trust and I also think listening to your own intuition. So I think when I was in Newcastle and I was being offered some great jobs and I needed to, you know, to stay put, but I had my itchy feet and I wanted to travel some more, people actually said to me, you know, this is a really big career mistake. And it may well have been, but I knew that I wanted to travel some more. And so I had to really trust my intuition. And as it worked out, it was the best thing I could have done for my career. Um, so I went for a year and stayed five. And then I've come back um, to Australia after that and have had some wonderful opportunities. So I think... I think it's good sometimes to leave on a high, leave a job when you're, you know, things are great, you're really enjoying it, but it might be that another opportunity presents itself and you might think, gosh, that sounds interesting. Um, mm. Or it might be that you fall in love and actually you're really loving being in Melbourne, but the love of your life's in Sri Lanka or New York or where mm. New Zealand and you think actually I want to follow them and give this a shot and I'll get mm. whatever. So I think doing, trusting your intuition and following the opportunities that are right for you that sometimes might be professional and sometimes might also be personal. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, you know, I guess not being afraid to go against what's popular thought perhaps at times, uh, you know, knowing yourself well enough that, um, you know, convention might say you should stay put. But if you, you have that feeling that you want to do something different, then, you know, trusting yourself as well uh, to do that. So yeah. does, does that kind of make sense? It, it does. And I remember you talk when we, Tiana and I were lucky enough to actually have Janine as a lecturer last year and we were able to do some these sorts of things as well and talk about almost just have an in-person podcast someday <laughs> but we I remember when you talked about leaving on a high note and that has always stuck with me I think it's a really it's just something really good to keep in mind I think often we are in the kind of traditionally or I guess maybe just yeah, typically people tend to think about leaving when things turn. Yeah. You know, there's a reason to leave, but sometimes there's actually not a reason to leave and it's you've just got to make the decision. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's really, um, it can be re really rewarding to stay in a job for a couple of years because, you know, you develop relationships and you get to understand how the organisation or the, the place you work operates. And so you can create some really great outcomes from your work. Um, so there's something to be said about staying in one place. But also then those skills and relationships you develop then will platform you potentially somewhere else and maybe somewhere you hadn't thought, um, you know, might be an avenue for you. So I think it's just, I think really investing in good relationships with people um, holds you in really good stead for the future. Um and I'm still friends with people that I worked with in Oxford. Um, and that's a really great thing. You know, I've used some of the doctors that I work with as referees. Um, you know, I've contacted people for guidance in different areas. So I think, you know, when you're investing in relationships with people, you, you don't know where they might take you. It's really, really exciting, I think. Mm. I think that leads really well into our final segment which is we want to talk about some advice that you may have for students and graduates so I feel like you've given us so so many pearls <laughs> of wisdom through this whole uh this whole conversation but what you're so for a bit of context you your teaching as you've said forms a lot around trying to develop nut nutrition and dietetic students 
personally and professionally. So do you have, like, what is one of some skills that would look, you know, if you had to pick the kind of most essential skills that you think nutrition students could, should kind of focus on learning that would perhaps complement their more theoretical studies? Yeah, I think you might be able to guess what I'll say. Um, mm. <laughs> but there are two things. And I think the first one really is around food uh, and around food knowledge uh, and food skills and cooking. Um, so I think it's vital really that nutrition students and graduates um, can understand and enjoy food um, beyond mm. just its nutrient value and function in the body. So I think our training is very much focused on, you know, the nutrient value of food, um, all the scientific elements to it, and then the function. But I guess what I think is really important is that we can understand food from that cultural and social social and personal perspective uh, and be able to do things with food. So when we're working with people or we're working in food policy, um, whatever sort of spectrum where we're connecting with food, that we have a lot of practical and um, connection with food. So I think enjoying food, uh, and again, we draw a lot on that in our course, but hoping that, um, and I think that really enables people to be really effective in their practice because changing food behaviour, changing what people choose to eat, it's an incredibly personal thing. Uh, and it's one of the most intimate things that we do. Um, and so I think we have to have really great skills in being able to work with people uh, and communities and being able to make food changes that, that are lasting and meaningful. Um, and I think the other most important skill is really being able to talk and listen with people, um, in really in partnership with people, not being the boss, not being the expert, but really being with people uh, and really with diverse people. And so I think for me a lot of that's about being able to work with real empathy and with acceptance. So I think mm. food and connection are probably the two things that I think will really um, be invaluable. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, does that, is, have I sort of explained it clearly enough, do you think? Is that? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And do you, in terms of kind of the building, say building, expanding on that point of kind of building empathy, do you think, how would you suggest in terms of maybe some practical suggestions on ways people might be able to build their empathy or build their kind mm -hmm. of emotional intelligence as a whole? Yeah. There's a really wonderful book. Um, it's called Empathy why it matters and how to get it i think that's the correct title and it's written by a man called roman Kranich, and i think it's k-r-z-n-a-r-i-c so and i went to hear him speak and he talks about things uh in quite practical terms and i think it's you know it can be reading or watching films or listening to podcasts that really stretch you and really help you understand things from other people's perspectives. So I think that can be a really, and, and perfect, you know, at this time when we're in isolation, um, connecting with people who have very different ideas and values to you and really trying to understand their perspective and where they're coming from. So that might mean, you know, watching different shows or listening to different things. Um, and I think really sort of dropping, dropping our sense of, of perfection. Uh, we're all imperfect beings um, and really, I think, enjoying the humanism. And I think this era in time that we're in at the moment is really helping us focus on the simple things um, mm. and about, about sort of our humanity is very common and very shared um, and we're much more similar than we are different. Um, so I think, I think I'd really recommend that book. Uh, there's also a virtual empathy museum that you can Google. And so that's another really interesting thing. Uh, and a colleague of mine has got some work there. Um, but I think empathy is about really expanding your thinking into areas uh, that are different from your own and, and being accepting of that. 
Mm. And that I think that really is so important in our degree, or I guess in life, not just for nutrition students or professionals, but because we are often taught the kind of the nutrient reference values and how to run, like how to do perform a dietary assessment and those sorts of very practical skills, mm-hmm. but in the, in um, in kind of reality requires as you said it's you know I remember you saying to us last year in terms of when someone moves to a different like so immigration food is often Mm -hmm. the like is the last thing to change yeah so it's yeah I think that's really important what you've said about expanding that food and empathy knowledge is really going to help us as yeah and like you know yeah we know that we should all be having sort of you know, seven serves of fruit and veg a day, and we know that only about 10% of Victorians actually achieve that. And so, you know, when you're working with someone who might have really limited um, access financially to food, they might have really limited resources, you know, cooking, how do we convert trying to get them to eat more fruit and vegetables into something that's really meaningful for them? Um, Mm. So I think... Yeah, so I think working with empathy has so much application across our practice. And so times it might even be with colleagues, you know, or with one of your peers, someone who might be having a tough time and actually you might pick up more of the work uh, in support of them. And they're the sorts of things that really um, make make you a good team member, um, a great colleague, a great employee, et cetera, and also Mm. hopefully a very effective nutrition professional. Mm. So just to round off this part of the segment, what what is one pearl of wisdom, if you can think of just one, <laughs> that you would give to nutrition students and graduates? I think I'm going to use a quote from Brené Brown, um, who is, I guess, a bit of a guru for me. And I think it's a quote of hers, and that is that when we have the courage to walk into our own story and own it, we get to write the ending. So when we don't own our stories of failure and setbacks and hurt, they own us. So I think for me that that really is about really knowing yourself accepting that we're we're imperfect and we all make errors and we all have failures and setbacks but the more we can understand ourselves uh, own our stories as she says the more that you can connect with that then I think really opportunities will open themselves up um, and so that's probably I think um and, and I guess it's understanding that in others, not expecting our clients or the people we work with, you know, they're not perfect. But if we can walk, I guess, beside someone or work in collaboration, in partnership, then we're going to achieve much better outcomes. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. as students, you know, you begin that in your group work, um, working with each other, developing relationship with lecturers. Um, and I think... You know, lecturers will bend over backwards for students if we can see that you're working hard to the best of your ability and that you're showing up. Um, so I think, yeah, that's probably my my pearl. It's probably not very clear. Um, but I think my two-word pearl would be to go boldly. Um, mm. That used to be a Monash marketing campaign is mm. that, you know, forge new be brave uh be courageous and forge your own path and there's no such thing as the right path but create your own path so go boldly where do you see nutrition going in the future I can't even probably imagine where it might go, and I think it's so incredibly exciting. I think even to see how it's evolved in the past sort of five years with social media and that food and eating are really sort of front and centre for so many people. And what I know is that good nutrition is important for everyone, uh, and so nutrition professionals have got a role to play everywhere. Mm. So I think nutrition will remain very much um, centre of focus 
and we will only be limited be limited by our imaginations and our creativity and so it comes back to me saying go boldly and carve out nutrition careers and pathways where it suits you uh, and where you see opportunities yeah and in terms of your kind of your career and your professional life what's what's your next fight what's the project that you're currently working on wow um well finishing my phd uh is my key thing i need to achieve and i'm really excited about that uh i would love to one day um have a shed uh on a beautiful block of land somewhere where I can grow food and cook food and perhaps host my own podcast from. So a place where I can bring people together to talk about food. Um, that's what I would love one day. Please tell us when that is. Yeah. <laughs> what, what happens? Just kind of to just question I have that I think we can ask it then we've got a little bit of time you can ask anything <laughs> what happens once you have completed a PhD um I guess traditionally that would be a launching pad for someone to then go into a postdoc and perhaps an academic career so mine's a bit the reverse way that probably for my day-to-day -day, not much will change but I guess it will create opportunities if I wanted to go to another university um, or if I wanted to do, you know, expand my research more broadly. Um, so I'm not quite sure what it will mean for me, um, but I think a sense of fulfilment and satisfaction uh, mm. and who knows where to from there. But traditionally it would be the beginnings of sort of an academic career. Um, mm. But I think what I know from friends who've done PhDs is that they've, and at different times of their life, they've all said you can't imagine the doors that it opens. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to seeing some of the doors that open um, and hopefully one will be into my shed where I can <laughs> uh, connect uh, with people and food. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I also do one more question just I feel like throughout this whole podcast there's kind of been this underlying theme of like courage so you've mentioned a lot about like em empathy and being bold so how do you and I feel like that's kind of also propelled you forward as well so being coming from that shy country girl yeah how do you how did you find that throughout your not just your professional but your, also your personal kind of journey that's probably worthy of a whole other podcast. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a succinct answer, I guess, Tiana, um, and to give it sort of the credit that it's due. Some of the experiences early on in my life as a child um, probably really helped me build empathy or, or care about empathy. Um, and then I remember actually having a boyfriend in my mid-20s and he was six foot seven and he was quite a bit older than me. And he was quite a, he was a very enigmatic man and he attracted a lot of attention and he had a black panel van. So he was quite unorthodox. But what he really fostered in me was this courage to, to be myself. And I think in that time of my life, in my early and mid-20s, I did a lot of reading. Uh, I read books about how to be assertive um, and I really invested in in developing myself I suppose and had some amazing friends who really encouraged me uh, and expanded my horizons so a combination probably of things does that does that help yeah yeah, yeah. thank, thank <laughs> you so thank you so much Janine I think Tiana and I agree if we could talk for another three <laughs> hours we would but I just I think beyond being just inspiring I think your what we've talked about is what you've talked about is very embedded in practicality and I hope our mm -hmm. listeners can actually take some kind of practical steps out of this um, and yeah think of it outside the box and I think you're just your career is just telling that you you really have done that and it's mm -hmm. 
And yeah, just you, you have gone boldly and I hope that, yeah, I hope that our, our listeners can as well. So thank you and thank you so much for being our first guest. It's an absolute pleasure and a privilege and I really uh, think it's an amazing initiative and I wish you really, wish you wonderful things. Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of The Next Bite. We hope you took away as much from that conversation as we did. We both agree Janine is truly such a humble and calming presence and we love how her advice was embedded in a lot of practicality. So we all encourage you to go away and think about how you can go boldly this week. Next time, we'll be interviewing a corporate nutritionist who graduated from the Bachelor of Nutrition Science program, and we have no doubt that it will be another insightful episode. Thanks for listening and see you next time.